0: You can turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, if you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you, and you'll find 1 Corinthians 14 on page 1,151. And it's going to be a larger section we're looking at, so really encourage you to open there and, and keep it open so that you can follow along. In so many areas of our life, we need to have a balance between um, order and freedom in society, order and freedom. Think think about uh, driving a car and traffic laws. There's a number of laws that you have to follow. There's speed limits, there's different traffic lanes. Sometimes you can pass, sometimes you can't pass, right? There's uh, turn signals, there's one way streets, yielding on a roundabout, which is still probably a mystery to many of you as we're still getting used to roundabouts, right? Uh, the diverging diamond. There's all these situations in which there's rules that we need to follow. uh, And without them, it would be chaotic. and It would be unsafe. Uh, And yet, there's a lot of freedom, right? Within those rules, you can go where you want, when you want. You can listen to the music you want to, or a podcast, or nothing at all. You can be alone, or in a minivan full of people. You can drive a large truck or a small economy car right there's lots of freedom but within kind of some set parameters so like in so many other areas there there's kind of these extremes we want to avoid of tyranny where every facet of driving would be micromanaged to chaos on the other side where there's no rules and it would be it would be unsafe well likewise when it comes to corporate worship worship together as believers, thinking specifically of when we gather in this setting that we are now to, to worship together, it, there's this balance between order and freedom that I think the Lord gives us. Uh, a term that is sometimes used to describe the, the order aspect of it, but also the freedom that's there, is a principle known as the regulative principle. And the regulative principle in the most basic form, there's a lot we could develop here, the most basic form though is To say that the worship we offer to God should be determined by God through his word. That he tells us how he wants us to worship him. He he tells us what a worship service should be like. Typically it's spelled out in terms of singing and praying and preaching the word. And ordinances of baptism and communion. There's order there, we're not reinventing this thing called church, right? We, we go with what the word says. Uh, but there's freedom within that, right? How many songs do we sing? What type of songs? What musical style? What instruments are involved? Who prays? Who helps lead in that? How long do we pray for? Are they scripted or are they more just kind of natural? How many sermons? That, that may not seem like a question to you. It's like one Uh, Maybe, right? Uh, Around the world, it's common to have two, three, four sermons sometimes as the body gathers, often for multiple hours. Uh, So there's freedom for decisions like that. Even with a one sermon, how how long ought it to be, what tools should be used in communicating it? That's where there's freedom, but within order. The benefit of that is as we travel around the world, you gather with other believers even with vastly different cultural settings, if they're committed to a similar principle here, you'll find similar things. One man described attending a church in Zambia. And as he was in this church service, it started a little bit more casually as far as the timing. Uh, the worship team up front consisted basically of some men on bongos and they started to, to play when it was time to begin the service and the, the whole room stood, and there was kind of more dancing along with it, but then they got to singing. It was beautiful, Christ-centered worship in a language maybe he didn't fully understand. Um, and they moved out from that to to praying together and preaching the word. There were some cultural nuances, of course, that were different, and, and yet the kind of the nuts and bolts of it are the same. When we move away from this, often out of a good intention, we we move away from really what is kind of worship is designed to be and, and we can get into things that sometimes are distractions um, at best even if they're maybe enjoyable or entertaining but also to things that are far from just distracting but even unnecessarily uncomfortable a, another author described visiting a church where at one point the guy who was leading had everybody stand up and I won't do this but he had everybody stand up and he said now turn to the person to your right and I want you to start giving them a back rub uh, and then he said do that for listen I want you to turn to the person on your left and I want you to I want you to tell them you love them and, and I was thinking if I tried that here I think you'd probably turn around and <laughs> and head out right um, and, because it was probably a creative idea maybe the, it was probably a point he's wanting to communicate and yet when we move away from the simplicity of God is described with worship, we can get into scenarios that are distracting. And, and, and really a way to think about it is believers are required to gather together for worship. The word requires that of us. And so if those that are planning the worship service require things of people that are beyond what the word requires, we're laying unnecessary burdens that may seem interesting or may seem like a good idea, but it's really compelling people to be part of something that the word doesn't require there by adding extra layers. All of that leads into our passage this morning. In 1 Corinthians, from about chapters 11 through 14, it's all dealing with the gathering of the church, with communion, with different roles of men and women, with spiritual gifts, with the priority of love. That's what we've been dealing with all through here, and we'll cap that off, actually by looking at a fairly long section altogether. Uh, But really it builds on all that we've seen, especially in chapters 12 and 13. Uh, And it's going to look at the gathering of the church, and and specifically the use of the spiritual gift of, of tongues and Prophecy and how they fit together and ought to be utilized. Now, if you've missed some messages the last few weeks, uh, we've dealt with this in detail. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the gift of tongues, uh, what it is is it still active, how it should be expressed, Uh, you know, when it was active. And so if that's a loaded question for you, but you missed that message, uh, we're not gonna get into that in detail today. Uh, But I encourage you to go back and catch our message a couple weeks ago. Likewise, last week we dealt with prophecy in detail. Uh, Those set the stage really for what we'll see right here as it looks at how in an orderly manner, different gifts should be used in the gathering of the church. Because we're doing a larger section, about 40 verses here, uh, we won't go into as much detail in every part of it, but we'll get the, the big idea uh, that runs through it. Let me read it now. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may Prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not uh, speak to men but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in, in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise... If you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of stranger I will speak to this people. Even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But, if all prophesy... Uh, And an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of the heart are disclosed, so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be uh, by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If the desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Okay, it's a lot here in terms of volume, but it's really a kind of a simple big idea that runs through it. And it builds on what we've already seen. We'll look at it really in four parts. The first... It's just simply this, that prophecy, it edifies more than the gift of tongues. It's the point he makes in these first few verses. It's a natural extension here in the end of chapter 12. Chapter 12 ended with the statement, earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. And then in chapter 13, he develops that more excellent way of love. And he comes back and he says, pursue love, this more excellent way, yet... Desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially, he says, that you may prophesy. It's the spirit who distributes gifts as he wills. We saw that in chapter 12 as we looked at a few different sections in there. Yet the Corinthians appear to be clamoring over certain gifts that they see as more showy, more flashy, more important, and specifically the gift of tongues. And yet Paul says, hey, you're actually pursuing the wrong goal, and if you're going to Pursue a gift at all. It's the wrong gifts you're pursuing. It's the wrong goal. The goal ought to be love. Comes back to that over and over again. And, and if anything, it's this gift of prophecy because it edifies. It builds up. Now, he uses language like that throughout of what is he's wishing for, what they're wishing for, what they're pursuing. It doesn't take away that it's the spirit who gives gifts. Sovereignly as he so wills. But he's saying if you're desiring them corporately together in a body, desire those that most edify, that most build up. And that's the phrase, the term that is really key in this chapter is edify. Comes up seven times in different forms. Has to do with that which, which builds up. It says be, be pursuing those things that build up the body. Build up, they edify, they exhort, they console, it says here. And it's truth that does that. It's truth that's understood, lived out in, in love and in relationship with one another. It says, with tongues, the way they're practicing it there, with no one to interpret, no one who understands that language, you're just speaking into the air, he says. It's not understandable, so it's not building anybody up. But it's God's word that does that. It's, under, it's truth that's understood that edifies. Think of a classic passage we come back to over and over again about the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now he's talking in this passage about prophecy because it was still ongoing, direct revelation from God. Uh, We talked about this last week. That was how truth was communicated. They would have been spending time in the scriptures, the Old Testament, as we call it now, and it would have been prophecy. Now we have the prophetic word. We have God's word that is living and active and builds us up in all these ways. And so it must be a priority in our worship services must be a priority to help the word be be understood, to, to be read, to be, to be taught. He says, without that, he it, it says it's like it only edifies the, the speaker. Look at verse 4. He says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophecies edifies the church. Well, in what sense does he edify himself? Saying, well, if he's has this gift, which is speaking in a language unknown to him but it's a real language but there's nobody around who understands that language he might be really excited about this opportunity to, to speak in this and, and yet that's kind of all it ends with is his own excitement this supernatural expression through him but nobody is built up by it because nobody can understand it says no strive for that which edifies that builds up the church He clarifies in verse 5, he says, I'm not anti-tongues. He says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. So when this gift was still active and it had certainly a specific purpose. He says, that'd be great. I'm not opposed to it. But, that's not building up. Especially the way that they are operating and using it there. One author, Stephen, Um, he says it this way. They were prioritizing the impressive over the intelligible. They were prioritizing the impressive over the intelligible. And so he goes on to develop then why. Why is prophecy to be preferred? And he says it's because only what is understood is what edifies. So he gives 13 verses here really developing this principle. And he does so in a variety of different ways. He says, if I came to you speaking in tongues, in this language you don't understand, even if it's supernaturally given, you would not be helped. And then he goes on to even describe musical instruments in kind of a parallel. He says, there's all these musical instruments, but if they're not making distinct notes, then it's not helpful. It's not music. Maybe you've heard a child that's, well-intentioned, finds themselves at the piano or at a guitar, and they're just plunking at things, right? And there's no distinction in the notes. There's not a, a song that they're playing. Well, they're maybe very interested in that, right? But it's not, it's not music, because it's not carrying really meaning and distinction there. And it gives the example, too, of a bugle. A bugle would have been used to communicate to an army that, hey, it was time to assemble, or it's time to march out, and there were distinct notes, distinct tunes that were to be played there. And he says, if it, verse 8, makes an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? It's getting at understandability, even in music or in a, a bugle. And he says, likewise, for language. He says, there's many different languages in the world. But they all have meaning. And if they're communicated in a way that that meaning isn't understood... Uh, then it's not accomplishing the purpose of that language. So, he says, strive for understandability. If if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when I talked about the gift of tongues, that's my concern with the way it's expressed in uh, modern usage today, is that it seems removed from this idea that we see in the first century of meaning and of real language unknown to the speaker. And it's... More what's considered like an ecstatic utterance. Uh, but it's not carrying meaning. and So it seems to be moving away from, from this description, both in the book of Acts uh, and even here in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, no, there's a great many languages in the world, but they all carry meaning. And if I don't understand it, it's, it's like I'm a barbarian, verse 11, or you're a barbarian speaking to me. He says, so, verse 12, seek that which edifies if one does speak in a tongue verse 13 pray that somebody could interpret either supernaturally or cuz they know that language but without that it they won't know how to respond even to what you're saying how, how will they know how to give an amen is what he says in verse 16 uh, apart from that uh, you you can think of this with just languages even apart from that supernatural gift if if i were to kind of in the middle of a message say ah slava bogu You might say, I don't know what I'm supposed to say right here, right? (laughs) It's the Russian term for praise God. You'll hear that throughout Russian churches all the time. Slava Bogu, praise, praise God. But if you don't understand that, you can't respond back. Oh yes, Slava Bogu, praise, praise God. You wouldn't know what to say, right? And, And that's just a simple point he's making here with language. The way they're using this gift of tongues without others that can understand either supernaturally with the gift of interpretation or because they know the language the one speaking it maybe feels edified because they're feeling like the spirit is working through them but nobody else is helped by it because they can't understand the language he comes back though again in verse 18 to again clarify it seems like he's trying to make this point clear he's not anti-tongues he says I, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. That's not like a like an arrogant thing. He's saying I, this is a good gift. It, it had a specific function. Again, I believe that it's ceased, but it had a specific function. It accomplished a goal. I'm not anti that. He says, but in church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, five words that are understandable, that even ten thousand words in a language that's not understood, because it doesn't edify, it doesn't. It doesn't help. His emphasis here is on what happens in the church, in this corporate gathering. And he says this is what's going to help is understandable communication. Comes back, though, to the tongues. And this is a point that we, ah, sorry, I skipped over one part here. He does say, uh, I will speak with my, my spirit and my mind. And you might be wondering, what is he referring to there? Look at verses uh, 15, uh, I'll start in verse 14. It says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? Which is a phrase he uses a couple times here, basically saying, What's the point of this? How should I apply this? It says, What's the outcome? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, I will sing with the mind also. God wants our affections, our hearts, not just kind of rote intellect or knowledge. We see this in John 4.24. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We want the Holy Spirit to work in our very affections and so that we're not just going through the motions. But I think the point he's making there, that just that emotional experience, even if it seems profound of being able to speak in this foreign language you don't know, if it's apart from engaging the mind and engaging others, yes, it might seem like a profound emotional experience, but it's not accomplishing the goal um, of edifying. Uh, And so that it's not just emotional experience, but connected to the mind. And so even though I believe that the gift of tongues has, has ceased, that principle of God wanting our affections, not just the motions, absolutely rings true. That when we come and we sing and we study the word, And we pray, we shouldn't feel like just because we're going through these steps that it's mission accomplished. We should be considering what's going on in the inner life. And is my heart for the Lord here. Okay, comes back then to tongues. And the purpose of it. And again, still contrasting with prophecy. Prophecy is preferred because it's more helpful for non-believers and believers. Look at verse 20. Do not be children in your thinking, he says. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. It's calling them, and the word's calling us to mature thinking about spiritual gifts. And he says as a corrective that the way they're thinking about, especially this gift, is not mature. They're thinking it only in terms of their own expression, not the edification of the body. So he's calling them back to say, hey, no gifts are given just for the Enjoyment of the individual, but they're given to bless the body, to build up the body. So be mature. There's a word there for whatever your spiritual gift is. If it is a teaching-type gift or if it's more of even like a hospitality-serving, leadership-type thing, you you hopefully will find joy in using that gift. And that is kind of one thing to look for, to see, like, what is my spiritual gift? is. What you enjoy doing and serving. And yet the end is not just your joy. It's building up of people. It doesn't just terminate in yourself. That's mature thinking about tongues. uh, Mature thinking about any type of gift. So then with tongues, he gets back to what was the purpose of it. And we saw this. We spent more time here a couple weeks ago. uh, But he points back to a passage from Isaiah. Verse 21, where he says, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. There is a specific purpose here in tongues of a sign to unbelieving, and specifically unbelieving Jews. This is what we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And it was a sign to them of coming judgment if they don't turn to the Messiah. Uh, It was what Deuteronomy warned about. uh, And Isaiah then is fulfilling. So This is long before Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, uh, God through Moses was warning the people, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. Several times in the Old Testament it points to a nation that would come to bring judgment, but with a language that they didn't understand. And so it seems to be what Paul is picking up on here as well. He's saying there's a a language in some way, this language uh, piece is communicating that God is doing something different here. And in the book of Acts, we see that moving from a focus on just the Jewish people to Jews and Gentiles alike. And the doors of the kingdom Open up to both, and of course, Jewish people could still respond, but God not primarily working anymore through the, the Jewish nation, but Jews and Gentiles alike. And I believe God still has a unique purpose that he'll work for with the Jewish people yet to come, but in this present period, it's not a unique focus there. And so the initial expression of tongues it says somehow was a, a, an indicator of that. You can see it the second time it comes up in, book, in the book of Acts, perhaps even a little bit more, in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, uh, when we see Gentiles speaking in tongues. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that is the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking Uh, with tongues and exalting God. And in chapter 11, they point to that as an evidence that the gospel is going out through the Gentiles as well, no longer just working in this unique way through the Jewish people. So it appears to be the point that Paul is making here, that tongues in some way was an indicator of that, and yet the way that they're misusing it here isn't even accomplishing that goal of reaching out to unbelievers. He says, "But prophecy is for a sign." This is the second half of verse twenty-two. Not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Prophecy continues to build up believers. Therefore, verse twenty-three: If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? That that seems confusing because he said tongues is for unbelievers, right? He, he, that's what he said. It's it's an outreach thing, and yet he says. If an unbeliever comes in and they hear you speaking in tongues, they're just going to think you're mad. That that seems to be a contradiction. But I think the point he's making there is, yes, it's for unbelievers when used properly. When it helps get the gospel to people who don't know it in, in their language, but supernaturally given to the speaker so that they can hear the gospel in their own language. But he says, that's not how you're using it. You're just... Speaking in these languages, whether there's somebody there to hear or not, you're talking over the top of one another. You're not caring about understandability. So it's not even accomplishing that goal of reaching unbelievers. So it's being misused. But prophecy, understandable, both can reach out to unbelievers because they're hearing the word, piercing their heart. And again, that would have been in a direct sense at the time. I believe that's now in the word, the prophetic word, as it's read and taught, that God can use that when it's understandable to reach people. So he's made this big point that prophecy is to be preferred to tongues. That's the first point. And then he says, here's why. Because only what's understood edifies. And a second point, because has a specific purpose, and you're not accomplishing that purpose with tongues, the way you're using it. So, what then is to be the outcome? It's the second time now this phrase comes up. Look at verse 26. What is the outcome then? In other words, so what? This is the application point, right? It says, here's the teaching. Now, now what's the outcome? What's the application? And I think you can summarize it this way. Aim for orderly, edifying, participation in worship, that that it's orderly. It's not chaos, the way they were talking over each other and and not listening, and it's not understandable. It says, no, order, but edifying, building up people, and and in a way that allows people to use their gifts and, and to participate. This is where that regulative principle comes in that we were talking about earlier of what does God desire worship service to look like? And we see a glimpse of it here. There's other passages we would need to bring in to kind of flesh it out. But that worship ought to be edifying. It ought to build up. It it ought to involve uh, singing. He says, verse 26, when you assemble, each one has a a psalm. has has singing, whether that's corporate worship. It's Colossians 3.16, talks about teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Part of what we do when we gather is we sing. And it's not just because music is enjoyable, although it is, but it's because it's a way that we teach and admonish one another. It's glorifying to God it's his attributes are are focused on. It's flexibility in what that music is like. It's going to vary culture to culture, even church to church. But it ought to be a part of what we do in worship. So it ought to be... Singing, there ought to be teaching, he says there. A revelation, a a tongue, there was a time when it was was ongoing still, and especially if there's somebody there that could understand it, as he goes on to say. Uh, An interpretation, so that others could understand. But all things should be done for edification. So we gather, we sing. We we teach the word, we make it a priority in in, in what we do. Even, Even if it takes time. Even if some passages are hard to work through, like this one has elements that are hard to work through, we just labor working through it week after week because we think that it's, it's that which God uses to build up his people. And again, at the time, the gift of tongues was still active. The gift of prophecy and this direct revelation sense were still active, and so those were a part of this service. As we look at other passages, we see that when the body gathered together, they prayed. We do that. We we take communion. We see that in First Corinthians 11. We try to involve a variety of people in the services throughout the morning. And especially if you include like Sunday school in, in this. You know, we as we gather, we have a worship team up that's leading us in worship. We, we have within that often either Tom or Brad with some additional edifying words, often reading from the word or uh, developing some thought that goes along with the song. We have different board members that close in prayer. All of us sing together, so there's a participatory element. As we get into Sunday school, there's a variety of different people teaching, men and women and children in different settings. Uh, Even apart from that, there's just edification of each other as you spend time with one another, pray with one another, talk to one another. It ought to be participatory. Sometimes we bring in special elements of a, of a testimony or a, a special song that would fit within this. Updates from missionaries. All, all of that fits within this edification of the body. There's some flexibility on how that might be done. And honestly, as I read this, I, I was convicted that perhaps it might be good to have more participation from different people in different ways. That would be appropriate based on what we see here. Well, there's one more element that maybe you have questions about. Picking up in verse 34, it says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Okay, I understand maybe some questions there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're just not going to be able to talk about it. I'm just just kidding. Um, I understand. Yeah, I mean, some natural questions. Gosh, why is this dropped in there? What is this saying about men and and women? I want to remind you of a few things about the context here. Context is in the, the gathering of the local church. It's not every facet of church life, but the gathering, the corporate gathering in particular, these worship services on the Lord's Day. That's the most narrow focus of this. And specifically, the context right around this is in, on the, the giving and evaluating of prophecy. Did you notice that? Verse 31, it says, For you can all prophecy one by one, so that all may learn and be exhorted, uh, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Uh, and then right before this, verse 29, it says, let two or three do this and let the others pass judgment. The other prophets here, the other teachers in that sense. And so it's this giving and passing judgment on the teaching is the specific focus there. It's not saying that a woman couldn't Give an announcement at church that that would be a violation of this. Uh, or help with the worship team, that that would be a violation. That's The, the focus seems to be on the more the, the teaching and evaluating of that teaching, which matches what Paul has said elsewhere with gender distinctions in the leading of the church. In 1 Timothy 2.12, he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There's that same sense, and it's this, what's being... Prohibited is this teaching or exercising authority, the the pastoring, eldering, uh, teaching, evaluating with the corporate gathering, uh, that is limited. It says to to men in the way that God has set up the gender roles within the body. Kevin DeYoung, in his book on gender roles, he has an excellent section here. It says so the command for A woman to be silent does not assume that in all situations women cannot speak. The explicit situation in which a woman must be silent is where prophecies are being evaluated. Such evaluation would involve teaching and the exercise of authority over the other prophets, two activities Paul consistently denies to women. We see women throughout the Old and New Testament uh, teaching the word in different contexts. They're encouraged and, and told to instruct other women and children, we see in Titus 2. We see in Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, instructing Apollos more accurately in the way of truth. Uh, we see even in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage we saw, uh, well, it's a couple months ago now, I believe, uh, that, that women even would prophesy at times, but with, with a, a head covering on, kind of a loaded passage, but still indicating that there was a, a role that they were playing there. Uh, but that they were making some distinctions on what is allowed for men and women in the corporate gathering. Now it's, it's a more loaded topic than that, but as it fits within kind of the orderly nature of the worship, uh, that's what he's spelling out here. As he wraps up, I want you to see where it goes. Uh, verse 36. He says, "Was it from you that the Word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only?" He, he says, "Brothers, he's talking to the, the Corinthians. You're part of something much bigger here. And this isn't originating in you. It, so we got it setting up his churches and the use of these different gifts and the way they are to function. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. He says, this is this is coming from the Lord. It's not up to us to just decide how to do church on our own with what we might like. He says, no, it's it's from the Lord. So desire earnestly to prophecy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, when it's used in this way that he's describing there, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So as we wrap up, just summarize some of those things. What do we see from this then? And how the, the body is to function as we gather together. First, we should aim to edify. Right? That's the word that's repeated seven times through here in different forms. We ought to aim to edify. Build people up so that they're not, not built up. Like that can sound like you know, build up their self-esteem or something. No, as the Bible uses it, it's build them up to be like Christ, to, to know Christ, to worship Christ, to follow Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ. They're to be built up. Aim to be understood. We should aim to be understood in our, in our teaching and in our services. Some things that are complicated, some mornings I probably do a better job of that than other times. Sometimes you're thinking, Man, that is not very understandable, right? But we ought to aim for understanding, for, for clarity. We ought to aim for that in every facet of our service. We ought to aim both for nonbelievers and believers, I think is an application of this passage, that our corporate gathering is primarily for worship of God, building up of believers. But what it assumes here is that there's going to be people who come that aren't Christians. And the church ought to be aware that they're there and try to be as understandable to them as possible. Not using unnecessary jargon or confusing things as much as possible, but explaining it. Not targeting non-Christians in particular, as if that becomes the only focus of the the service, but mindful of different spiritual backgrounds that people are coming from to try to make the truth understandable to them that God may work in their lives. So aim for non-believers and believers and an aim for order, but an order that involves a variety of different people and gifts and allows freedom within that. Let's pray.